0: Hey there, and welcome back to The Will and Rob Show. It is great to be with you all. My name is Robert, Director of Communications and Ministry Associate for Ministry to State. Here with me, as always, my very good friend and colleague, Will Stockdale, also a Ministry Associate with Ministry to State. Will, how you doing?
1: I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. It's a beautiful uh, Monday afternoon. We're recording on Monday this week. Instead very of early.
0: Our- yeah, very early than usual
1: very early we're somewhat jumping the gun as they say hopefully not um but yeah doing well it's a beautiful day here in washington dc uh got to uh, preach at my church which was a, a real joy and privilege it's um it's fun to be able to to preach among <clears throat> a lot of friends and people that I know I've I mentioned this, but I've been preaching at a church in Vienna, which has been a, a joy as well. But I don't know the people there like I do the people here. And so having that added um, kind of intimacy and friendliness was, was really enjoyable. And the, I enjoyed the text that I got to look into. And so, yeah, it's, it's good. It's a good way to start the week. And what about you?
0: Oh, man, things are going well. Um, I had a great weekend. Uh, college football is back. Um, So week zero, this was this week. So there was a few games on, um, not, you know, the whole slate of college football really starts uh, this coming Saturday, but there were a few games on last Saturday and uh, I had been dealing with so much stress and anxiety. Um, And then to sit down on Saturday and just like sit on the couch, turn on college football uh, and like have it back was just like very therapeutic in many ways. Who did you watch? Well, so Nebraska and Illinois uh, had okay. a big game. Um, and everyone's been trying to talk about Nebraska being back. I mean, Will, you're, uh, you and I are old enough to remember the sort of the old Nebraska days.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, oh, like yeah.
0: The, um, obviously, the, the, the glory days in Nebraska were well before our time. But um, I still remember Nebraska being in the Big 12 and the Oklahoma-Nebraska game and how important that was and all that. Um, and then they've kind of been a shell of themselves ever since, which is really sad. And they, they showed that again, actually on, uh, on Saturday.
1: So in my household growing up, my dad couldn't stand Nebraska. I mean, there are two teams that my dad really couldn't stand is Notre Dame and Nebraska, which I think are two th- two teams that boomers. And it was almost just like an admitted prejudice. He's like, he's like, look, I don't have a very good reason for it other than, well, you know, interestingly enough, the reason I like Notre Dame was that because growing up on Saturday, uh, I think it was NBC would always air the Notre Dame game. So yeah, they had
0: like an exclusive contract,
1: exclusive contract. So if you're growing up in Amarillo, Texas, like you don't care about Notre Dame <laughs> unless you're a Roman Catholic, you want to watch Texas tech, but no, you had to watch uh, you had to watch Notre Dame. And so that, that was something that, you know, I think uh, he resented. And so it's, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Nebraska because I didn't, I didn't understand it. And, um, and again, I, they were, they were decent growing up, but not, great. And of course there's like, you mentioned the loss of the rivalry game between Notre Dame and Oklahoma. And then, and then of course, all of the drama that's happening right now around Texas and OU leaving the big 12 potentially. Um, yep. but and yeah, there's just it's just a lot so going
0: on in college football. And, uh, it was just sort of fun to sit down and, and watch game day and, um, Lee Corso's back on set. And so all that was really good. If you're not a college football fan, you'll like, be like skipping ahead right now. Um, but I, I just
1: as an American, you have got to appreciate the gym that Lee Corso is to is, American man. sports culture.
0: They said, he said that it was his 27th year on set of game day. Like that's just crazy, man. I hope that I am still doing something that I love and having as much fun as Lee Corso does at 27 years from now. That's all I have to say. Oh,
1: I mean, yeah, he's, he's an icon at this point. So that's great. You know, I, uh, you mentioned Texas my hope and every year even more than that A&M has a, a great season is that UT doesn't ever win a game I my my goal is to root against them clearly and do whatever I can to obstruct the path to victory which I don't have many uh means to do that but if I do I'm willing to participate you're and a so, good Aggie will you're a very uh, good Aggie Gosh, it is a blind disgust with that. I I was gonna say hatred, but I probably shouldn't. So I'll just say it is a deep and abiding disgust with that. That's awesome. That school. Um, and I'll say that to people's faces. It's fine. This is just something. I'm not hiding behind a microphone here. I'm not hiding behind it. Anyways, we're chit chatting.
0: Yeah, we, um, we didn't. We didn't mean this to be a college football podcast. We uh, we're actually back to uh, discuss the next section of. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faiths, chapter 23 on the civil magistrate. Last week, we um, discussed the first section, uh, and the week before that, we sort of talked about it in general, all in sort of connection to what's going on in Afghanistan. And we really thought that this event uh, provided an opportunity for the Will and Rob show to take some time and to discuss uh, what is it that reformed Christians, those who hold to uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, in particular, what is it that we believe about the church and the state, uh, and how those two spheres relate to one another? Mostly because our ministry is uh, ministering to those who serve in government, um, and so for those of uh, those folks who are listening to the show, uh, we were hoping to really provide some uh, some uh, uh, helpful uh, pointers or helpful doctrines that the confession states about how uh, a Christian goes about uh, uh, interacting with the state uh, and what it means. And so uh, obviously things in Afghanistan are continue to develop. Um, and so we'll, we're going to keep this conversation going. Uh, and we're in, we're in chapter 23, section two. Uh, I think, well, I'll go ahead and read it, and then we can really kind of get going. Uh, so chapter 23 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, section two states, it is lawful for Christians to hold public office when called to it. In such office, they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. For that purpose, they may now, under the New Testament, lawfully wage war upon just and necessary occasion. So there's, there's two things kind of really going on in this section, at least based on my research and study. Um, And so we'll kind of break them, break them down into those two things. The first is that first section. It is lawful for Christians to hold public office when called to it. Um, Will, let me ask you this in in terms of your understanding of the confession. What is, what are the divines doing uh, in this first sentence is lawful for Christians to hold public office?
1: Yeah. So when, when I look at this, it immediately takes my attention back to the first section, which is the first section gives definition to a, Christian understanding of the civil magistrate and what their role is in the place that they hold in society. Um, And so that means uh, representing the people for his glory, or I should say that's actually a very democratic way to look at representing the people, that they're over the people for his glory, uh, for the public good, and to the end that he hath armed them with the sword for encouragement of good and to punish evil. So what what is what is set up there as a biblical understanding of the role of government as a whole and those who hold the offices of government as we begin with section 2 in this first part of section 2 we look back up to that to say okay if that is God ordained if those are those are permissible by scripture by the will of God for government to do then it is okay for Christians to well. In addition, it is it is okay for Christians to hold the office of magistrate, knowing that that is what they're doing. And so I think that it is it is um, understanding and affirming that politics and governing are not just the messy, nasty business all of how the sausage is made, but that it is a good thing to to, to exist. And that, as such, Christians who are called to that should seek to faithfully administer um, their calling in in that way.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Um, I, when I read this sentence, I, I think of um, I have a buddy who grew up in a tradition where they the members of that that church were not allowed to vote. They were not allowed to hold any sort of office, even like you know city councilor. Um, and uh I think you, what you say about sort of uh, uh, pointing back to the, that first section of the, of the uh, chapter 23 of the Westminster Confession of, of God saying uh, that this government that this idea of government uh, has been created for for your good it, it, it's meant to um, uh, do good things and so it's obviously okay for Christians to, to partake in it um, I think that that's uh, 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 a really important point because those uh, who come from traditions where um not allowed to engage in the government spirit. It implicitly is saying something about government being naturally bad or um uh, unholy or some sort of bad place that Christians shouldn't be. And that should be hopefully a lot of encouragement for um, those who uh, we work with at Ministry to State, a lot of Christians who are called into uh, the into government work and I know who struggle sometimes with the idea of like, why am I called in this space? It doesn't seem like anything good is happening here. Um, How could I possibly live out my Christian faith here? Uh, and I think one thing that the Westminster Confession is saying is they know that the, that Christians are called into those those places. They are called uh, to uh, administer law uh, and to govern uh, others, and um, that's a noble calling uh, for many.
1: Yeah, and look. And especially as people will say things like, "Well, those po- politicians are so corrupt and so wicked." I'd say, first of all, for people, there, there is a lot of distance between the elected member and a staff assistant, or an elected member and a legislative correspondent. They are carrying out the day-to-day duties and responsibilities, communicating with with their constituents back home. Um, and like, let's take that take that line of reasoning far. You know, if if there is a um, an elected official that you consider corrupt, uh, wouldn't you want for there to be good, honest, faithful Christians serving in that place to be honest, to have integrity and pray for them because they're in a hard place to push back the darkness and to be salt and light to those around them. I I, want to say, barring like the exceptional cases of look, we'll go like Nazism, like some extreme evil where you're like that far, I I shall go no further than where I, you know, I, I can't cross that that line. But you know, up until then, I think there's a lot of freedom of conscience for people to serve in that way. And I'll say just a couple of biblical examples for this. One is Joseph serving Pharaoh. Um, people are like, well, that's the Old Testament. Now there's not the actual nation state of Israel. Well, to push back on that, Joseph wasn't working for uh, the Hebrew government and that time he was working for a pagan government at that time and honoring God. So there wasn't an establishment of a Jewish nation in that. And then another would be in the new Testament and Paul addressing those in Caesar's household and uh, encouraging them and being excited about them being where they were and the chances for the gospel to go forth. Um, they were in an incredibly precarious situation. Uh, a Very curious people, I'm sure, at that time. But I think those are two examples that maybe biblically can support um, this idea of, of Christians working in government. And well, I think, honestly, most people listening right now are probably of, of the mindset of it's okay. Um, but I, I think there needs to be affirmation and a biblical understanding of why and what that looks like.
0: Well, you point really well to the next uh, uh, part of the, the section that I wanted to bring out, which is that they ought to, especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. Um, I think that that is important for many reasons, uh, because what it, what it suggests is that um, the Westminster divines do not assume uh, the civil magistrate is working within a theonomy or a Christian nation state. Um, that that Christians are going to be spread out amongst governments of all different nations um, of all different traditions and heritages. um, And that part of their job or in their job in those places um, is to uh, help administer law um, that, that uh, points people towards the end of piety, justice and peace. And that's going to look really different in a lot of places. You know, you, you brought up the example of of joseph in uh in egypt and under pharaoh i mean what his administering the law of of saving harvests that people would be able to survive during the fasting period um i think you know uh, think about the, the roman days of christians you know and with you know we talk a lot about the um the paganism and the violence of the roman empire for sure and and there's absolutely um those things to be made there's also the added element of the amount of um uh, their idea of citizenship and the, and the, the justice that it came with that in terms of being able to be tried before a, a jury before your peers and, and the Roman legal system. Um, there's a lot of uh, in all of these nation states and all these governments, for the most part, there is a, there's sort of a mixture of um, justice and injustice. And the Christian is sort of in that that space moving law towards um, uh, the end of glorifying God and, and flourishing of, of his people.
1: I think, yeah, what you said, that moving law towards flourishing, there's a very important qualifier in this. I mean, remember, these are clear-minded people who have seen the religious wars wreak havoc on Europe, and so they're aware of violence and bad laws in the whole history that they were but one thing they, they call them wholesome laws. The qualify there is wholesome, that they are to enforce the wholesome laws. Now that has somewhat of a semantic range. What exactly is a wholesome law? What falls into that criteria? But I think what's in that and what's important is for the Christian who is called there for and in a democracy a democratic Republic citizens who vote uh, to look at laws that are unwholesome, that are unjust, that are oppressive, that are um, grossly inequitable to people and to, to revise them and change them. Those are laws that aren't just meant to be upheld, right. This to uphold wholesome laws, but for those that are unwholesome to seek to change and to correct, to make society more fit for flourishing.
0: Yeah. And I think importantly, the, the divines, one of their citations there uh, is first Timothy two, two, the theme being that um, we want to create wholesome laws that that lead people towards the opportunity to live quiet and peaceful lives, um, where they are uh, being good citizens, praying for their leaders, uh, praying for the government authorities, um, but not in a, in a sort of a religious crusade through the through the government sphere, um, but in 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 really in sort of um, promoting uh, the common good. We talked about that uh, last last section too.
1: You know, something that I think that we're probably pretty quick to recognize and see that's good is the idea of justice and peace. So we, we talk a lot about that and, and totally on board and think those are both needed. But the first thing that's mentioned is piety. And um, I agree with I think I think all Christians would agree that piety is good. I, again, making my way through the crown. And uh, there is a uh, a man who writes a scathing review of Queen Elizabeth and he meets with her and he tells her that the age of deference is over. And so what all he meant in that, I don't know, they didn't, he didn't elaborate too much on it in the show, but it kind of made me wince a little bit, kind of made me sad because with deference is um, a sense of respect to something higher and other and different from us. And, you know, piety uh, is something that is not nearly as affirmed or encouraged in 2020, in the, in the 21st century, I'll say. Uh, it's, it's viewed as a little bit of a passé idea. In fact, most of the time we use piety and piousness as pejorative words. We use them to kind of demean or take down someone. When um, society is going to have its forms of piety, it just may oftentimes manifest itself in the sacrilegious uh, in a perverse sort of way. But there, there are certainly, um, there are certainly pieties around there, and we want for them to support wholesome, uh, God honoring
0: piety. That's a really, really good point. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, well, now we're really moving into this sort of last uh, part, and it's there's a whole conversation we could have about sort of just war theory, but I don't think either of us are really qualified um, to super. go
1: I've said it once and I'll say it again. That's never stopped us, Robert. You keep <laughs> concerned about our qualifications and uh, man, come on now.
0: Yeah. So ju- just war theory, obviously being an entire school of thought um, uh, around uh, not just uh, the Christian's engagement with the state, but the Christian's engagement with the state at war um, is sort of the, the main point of it. But um, I do think that there, that we all, we all have these conversations you, you, you said um just because we're not an expert doesn't stop us from talking about it. I mean, the, the, the fact is that we all talk about, um, these things, uh, whether we recognize it as sort of a debate about just war theory or not. Um, and what happened in that, Af- what's happening in Afghanistan right now, uh, is a prime example of it. How do Christians think about, um, the Afghan conflict, uh, in, in terms of it's, it's, um, uh, the justice or what's the right word. Well, it's
1: hard to come up with words on this. I mean, it, it's it it maybe have been easier a couple of years ago to to talk about the idea of Afghanistan, but um, like uh, C.S. Lewis has made this point that the the past is constantly being redefined by the present. You know, the future has an impact on the past, in, in a way um, that helps us understand what it means. And as we look at things now, and the absolute look like, an absolute tragedy that is taking place right now. Um, It is hard to look back and when we ask questions was it a just war or not um we can say that it it met those criteria early on um but did it finish that way and looking at it now um how do we consider what has happened at the end uh maybe maybe they are separated maybe you still can have a, a just war that was carried out um Throughout, and then you can have things change at one point. But the, the fact is that um, the the end is is kind of reshaping and how we understand what all the events mean uh, and meant at the time.
0: Yeah. I mean, so I, I know that when we talk about just, you know, whether a war is just or not, it, it's really hard to have these conversations in the abstract. We, we've got to bring it down into history because I think we can all sort of... <laughs> theoretically come up with the idea of you know what might be what might a just war look like Um, but the fact about war in its nature is that it's an incredibly messy complicated um oftentimes sinful um event uh and it's and what you talked about sort of mixed in with the um the just elements are going to be the unjust elements yeah. Um, but so it's almost like we look for something on a, on a relative scale. And I think for most people, you know, sort of the, the epitome of, of a just war, at least in the modern era, right. Is world war II. We sort of look at that as being this sort of the quintessential just war. Um, I know you've been studying a lot about world war two. Is that something, is that what you tend to sort of go back to when you think about this part of the, of the confession?
1: I think mostly it's like, okay, well i think where i mostly go when i can hear just words okay what, what are what constitutes a just war what makes up a just war and um i mean we we continue to remain in the abstract if we say things like well it's good and noble it's honorable there's courage there's you know duty it's like okay well how do we know that duty is being followed correctly how do we know that people are being honorable so um and you're right we're not experts but, but into this too deep and like um particularize each war battle and say this was just or unjust but i think it is helpful to at least kind of mention the three criteria that are generally given for just war so there's usually um three things i said look for a war to be just at the minimum there are these three things that need to be required and this goes back to um Augustine, when he was writing City of God, right? I mean, he was being threatened. The the people of God were being threatened and accused because they're saying, hey, look, part of the reason we're falling apart is because of you and your lack of piety to the state. And so Augustine works on this, Aquinas works on this idea as well. There's a long, um, Calvin is interested in just war. Um, John Paul II was interested in just war Martin Luther. I mean, there are a lot of big names in Christianity in the Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, and Roman Catholic traditions that are in favor of just war. The only ones that I'm really know that are pacifist is that what pretty much has been an Anabaptist tradition all throughout. And and you can go back further in time and read about the pacifist tradition. Um, I don't think there's anything in between. I don't. Think, it's either like be a pacifist or just war theorist There's no like all war is God honoring. I, I I haven't come across that. I'm I'm sure it's out there somewhere. I just I haven't seen it. So what I'll say is there's three things that are necessary for a war. Um, to be just. And it, first of all, it has been, war has been enacted by a legitimate authority. So it can't be just a ragtag group of individuals that don't have any recognized authority upon them. And I'll say this also, it's interesting. A lot of times when we think about um, America's founding, we're like, well, was that a legitimate founding or not? And so maybe this helps us when we look at those, um, these these three areas. None of that, uh, a just cause is required Uh, and I'm quoting here, namely that those who are attacked should be attacked because they deserve it on account of some fault. And then third quote, it is necessary that the belligerents should have a rightful intention so that they intend the advancement of the good or the avoidance of evil. Mm. And um, so we have those three things. You have, you have an authority, you have to have a just um, provocation of it that, that had to begin. And then the ends have to be towards something better, not just destruction. And And look, it's that third one right now. And we look at Afghanistan and we're like, whoa, what, um, what, what do we do? What, what, I mean, how do we think about this? And, and honestly, guys, like I'm heartbroken. I I mean, reading these stories and talking to friends, I had dinner with a friend, um, who has been on the phone, was on the phone all day, trying to help get people out of Afghanistan. There's stories of, of Christians and, and, and American citizens who are chartering flights to get people out, um there's scrambling, there's chaos, there's beatings that are happening over there. There, um, There's economic crisis that's happening in that country. Now, as a result, there are so many things that are falling apart. Um, and, you know, it, it's as, as we think about um, war, you know, it is important for us to consider it in the just sense. If you believe that war can be executed, then it in a just way. And so we have to think about these three criteria and wonder if they're actually being met. Um, and again, Afghanistan comes to top of mind in a very heavy way.
0: Yeah, it's, it's almost sort of beyond um, my, cap- I mean, it's beyond my capabilities to really make a judgment. I, I'll, I'll leave that to the experts and the people that um, are spending time writing. A lot of people who've actually been there, seen it. Um, and have experienced it firsthand, something that I have not. So, um, I do think, as somebody who has who likes to study history, um, I, and I do spend a lot of time around military conflicts, um, just because it's an interest of mine. Um, the The point about the Revolutionary War has always been um, a topic that I've found fascinating because I've I've found as I as I grew up and was exper- uh, sort of exposed to different traditions than uh, my own intellectual traditions. Um, I found a, a sort of a camp of people who, who would argue that the Revolutionary War was not a just war, uh, that it was in fact unjust uh, on the behalf of the, uh, the colonists. Um, I think there's a lot of discussion about the Civil War uh, in terms of, um, uh, obviously, for a very just cause. Um, you, there's uh, certain elements of the Civil War, especially if you grow up in the South, you hear Passed down from uh your from family to family about sort of the destruction that was done um in the south sherman's Uh, march to the sea exactly and uh Um, the
1: the the, um habeas corpus
0: yeah um but i think world war ii is one that people point to as a very just war but then it always has this little asterisk on it about uh the atomic bombs um and that are endlessly debated as well and so i i think it just goes to show that this is such a uh a fascinating topic full of a lot of interesting questions. Um, and I think one important part that the divines don't do here um, is they don't really try to set out, here's a full art, you know, our articulated vision of just war theory. Um, because I think they realize that that would take pages and pages and pages. Um, instead what they just state is that um, it's actually, according to the Westminster confession of faith um, that it, there are, a just war, in theory, does exist, um, and it will be up to the prudence and the wisdom of those in in civil government uh, of the civil magistrate to determine uh, whether or not um, uh, certain actions provocations uh, warrant uh, just war uh, as a response.
1: Right, right, and they're looking to to stay as close to what can be verified in terms of orthodoxy here. Um, Well,
0: obviously in scripture, we're going to have, there's plenty of examples, right? Of, especially in the old Testament uh, of God's people uh, being led and called into war, uh, obviously for a a myriad of different reasons and and purposes uh, as stated in the old Testament, but nonetheless, war certainly exists uh, in the old Testament.
1: Right. Yeah, this is, this is good. And I think when we look at this, there are things that are weighty to consider, like, Again, um, the the concept of war because, uh, man, it's hard to find human history and not find warfare. I mean, in fact, Cormac McCarthy in his his book uh, Blood Meridian, his character the Judge, um, who is kind of the embodiment of war, is like I was here at the world's beginning, and I well, he's referring to war as here at the world's beginning. We'll be here long after you're gone. You know, it's kind of this thing that's uh, shapes us deeply. I mean, war has a profound effect on the way that citizens of a country of a commonwealth think of themselves and, and um, whether to pride, you know, um, defeating the Nazis in world or two, is something to be very, very proud of. Vietnam was something to be very, very broken over um, and parts ashamed of. I mean, uh, so it, it, it affects the national consciousness. And I think to that end, our leaders have got to be very, prayerful we need to be praying for them thoughtful wise considering what this will do to the soul of the nation Very well but it's said. also but i'll say this but it's also encouraging because like look to those who are working in government god has called you to this god has given you license and and authority to carry that out um in, in your place of um to be honoring to him and to be salt and light and that's that's really wonderful
0: that is that's a that's a wonderful point and a good, and a good place to end I think too. Um, this has been uh, a really great conversation again on the Westminster Confession of Faith, this particular chapter, chapter twenty three. Uh, I'm looking forward to future conversations. Um, we're really just kind of getting started, um, and actually, uh, section three uh, has a lot of interesting historical context um, because we can we sort of get the first uh, rewrite in the American context. Uh, so. Uh, Definitely excited for that. Well, uh, as always, uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at RD Hassler. Will is at Stockdale Will. Uh, Make sure to check out ministrytostate.org. And with that, we'll see you guys again next week.